0: Hello, Michael here from the RPG Academy Podcast. And I'm interrupting your regularly scheduled show for a brief word about a catacon, which is a tabletop gaming convention. This is our second year open to the public, and we are still quite small, but we do have some huge guests that are lined up to play games with us. And at a catacon, that is our focus: playing games. A catacon 2016 is happening in November on the 11th, 12th, and 13th, at the Dayton Convention Center in Dayton, Ohio. However, if you want a badge, you need to check out the Kickstarter, which will go live in April. If you'd like more information or to keep up to date on any new Akatakon news, please check out our event page at facebook.com slash or on our
1: website, therpgacademy.com slash I now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast.
0: This is the MFGCast. hey guys kurt here and mike and we have another what we call a regular episode for you we're going to be talking about intellectual property okay before we actually had an older episode where we talked about original ips and we talked about the things that we like but this time we're going to go with a little, something a little different we've got a special guest we've got mike wokash from fairway three games on to talk about talk to us about this kind of thing because he is an intellectual property lawyer So I thought it would be kind of cool to to have him talk about the ins and outs of trying to, you know, get that either, well... For this, we're gonna be talking about games. So, you know, getting a name, getting artistic license and and so forth and stuff like that. So I thought it would be nice to have him on. So Mike, thanks for coming on.
1: Ah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm I'm happy to be here. Awesome, awesome.
0: And so we don't confuse everybody. We've got two mics today. So we're gonna mix it up a little bit. So we're gonna call Mike from Fairway Three Games Mike. And because Mike from the MFG cast. His last name is Karshbaum. A lot of times we call him Karsh. So for this episode, we're going to call him Karsh. So there won't be any confusion there. Except by me, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So if I say Mike, you'd be like, okay, which one of us is talking right now? So I was looking up some things uh, today, and I decided to look up the uh, define as intellectual property. So intellectual property refers to creations of the mind, inventions, literary and artistic works, and symbols names and images used in commerce. Intellectual property is divided into two categories. One is industrial property, which includes patents for inventions, trademarks, industrial designs, and geographical indications. But there's also copyright. Copyright covers literary works such as novels, poems, and plays, films, music, artistic works. Examples are drawings, paintings, photographs, and sculptures, and architectural design. So. Mike, since I found this definition of it, does that seem like that's what you deal with on a daily
1: basis with your job? I'm not so sure I'd put it in so many words, but that's kind of what it is. <laughs> a, sounds like a nice Wikipedia definition of intellectual property. Yeah. I mean, in, in essence, the way I think, prefer to think about it is intellectual property is stuff that we want to protect that isn't things you can actually touch with your hands. I had a law partner once describe it's essentially anything that you can't drop on your foot. So. <laughs>
0: nice. So, for being an IP lawyer yourself, what uh, what do you deal with mostly? Do you deal with, is it the, on the literary side? Is it on the game side? Well, of course, with your Game company, fairway through games, you deal with games quite a bit. But what's what do you deal with mostly?
1: So I'm technically a patent attorney. I do a lot of work with patents, but my day in day out work is almost exclusively around software. Uh, And then on the sort of hobby business side, I deal with the intellectual property of games, things like copyrights and trademarks.
0: So when you're now now that you're you have this hobby of having your own game company and stuff like that. What kind of, especially with this Kickstarter that you have right now for Starving Artists, what are, what are the kind of things that you deal with when trying to come out with a game like this?
1: So, so Starving Artists is actually a, a very interesting example of intellectual property. I, In that game, I took heavily from great works of art that are in what's called the public domain in lieu of trying to go and get you know, dozens and dozens of, unique, created just for the game art, I actually took great works of art from Van Gogh, Picasso, things like that, and put them into my game. Probably that's the biggest area that most game designers, game creators, game artists, that's the area that they run into the most, is copyrights.
0: So with these you know, fine works art and stuff like that. They're in a public domain. So, what what specifies that as being in a public domain is that because they're so old that they haven't had they haven't had time to have that patent on them that you know other people can use them.
1: So that's a good question. Um, most of the stuff that you find on the internet isn't in the public domain. There's a there's a very, uh, sh- sort of a lifetime for a copyright, that is, you don't get a copyright forever and ever. It ends after a little while. And in the United States, there's an actual cutoff date. So if you find works of art, for example, from prior to 1922, it is almost, there's almost certainty that it's in the public domain. Uh, there's a couple disputes about some some things, but by and large, anything prior to 1922 uh, is in the public domain and is freely usable for any purpose, commercial or otherwise. Uh, in fact, it was one of the questions when I was shopping around my preview page, people asked constantly, it was almost, how can you do this? How come it's, you know, how can you have all this art up here? That I preemptively added a free, frequently asked question at the very bottom of the page to explain a little bit about copyrights in that, in that game in particular. There are other places, and I'm sure there are people going to be listening, going, well, can't you have public domain for other things? Yes, but the safest route is to find things that predate 1922. And at the bottom, if you're really curious, start at the bottom of the Starving Artist Kickstarter page is a link to probably single-handedly the, the greatest little table that'll tell you whether something you're looking at is in the public domain or not. Very nice. I actually linked to it awesome
0: so it, it makes me think about the name starving artist too because when before i went i was looking up your game and stuff like that before i really got to know you mike just looking stuff on the internet sometimes it's very it's very hard to find different things so when you're looking at naming your game starving artists is that something too that you have to look through to make sure okay let's make sure there's nothing that's close to this game you know they the make sure that there's nothing where there's something similar to this game than what you have
1: yeah so the That's uh, actually the area called trademarks, Uh, and I did. One of the steps that I took was when I went down this path of picking Starving Artists as a game name, I looked at Board Game Geek was my first search, like, is there anybody else that's even done anything like this? And then, because it's kind of a common phrase, just to make sure it wasn't actually trademarked by somebody else prior to using it as a name, I actually did do a trademark search, in part because I know how to do that myself and it was relatively straightforward. But I do recommend people, especially if they're going to embark on a Kickstarter campaign or if they're going to uh, start committing heavily to art creation or you know writing, that they at least take a look to make sure that there isn't something already out there. It's a lot harder to change after the fact than it is. To make something, to make a change early in the process. Now, that's, you know, and one of the questions, it's interesting, I'm a member of the Independent Game Alliance too, um, and occasionally I will get. Uh, emails from other game designers who are in kind of a sticky situation either they were the second comer so they they created a game uh, maybe not even realizing that there was another game of similar sort out there sort of asking well what do i do now what happens when i'm the one that is trying to use a name or you know in some weird cases. What if I came out first, but a big publisher then releases the game shortly after with one that sounds an awful lot like my name or my game? Those those questions are frequent, and it's it's kind of unfortunate, really. But you know, they, they do come up, and it is one that I think is of concern to most game designers when they're starting to brand their game.
0: That makes sense. So this made me think of a question. So you know, with dealing in your in your field and stuff like that. I don't I don't know if you've dealt with this or if you worked with people that have dealt dealt with this, but you know, say you have a game that's out there that has a certain mechanic that's not being made anymore and another game company wants to release it under something else like the one thing i can think of is when stronghold games took a game made by a a gentleman that he just kind of made on his own didn't really i think he just kind of made it for himself and didn't really release it and then which was like called battlestar galactica well then stronghold games got a hold of it and wanted to make it into dark moon which they did so what kind of process do you have to go through in order to grab something like that from someone that already has that, you know, somewhat made?
1: So are you talking about actually getting it from the original designer? or are you talking about, like, re it your own way?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, what kind of steps do you need to go to that you're not stepping on anybody's toes and you're, you know, you're not in trouble for basically ripping off somebody else's game?
1: So this has come up, there's been a couple big controversies about this sort of behavior. Either big designers essentially re-theming or reskinning skinning another game. Reality is that the mechanics themselves are often not protectable. There's very few Ways to protect a, a way of actually playing a game, and there's very few ways to protect sort of the numbers and the mechanics that most people think about when they're designing games. That said, even though that there's no like intellectual property protection for those things, there is certainly the risk that somebody will accuse you of plagiarism or ripping someone off or you know taking and being an un- unoriginal. And in some ways, it's better just to clear the decks right away, either get the support of the designer that gave up on it, you know. Come to some arrangement or agreement if you're going to reskin or retheme, and just clear the decks at the outset. That would be my preference for most people if they really think that that's going to be an issue, uh, or if they plan to go to create a mass market situation where they're going to take an idea that was... You know, abandon it by one designer and go someplace else with it. Just a nominal amount of money, recognition, put that person's name on it, uh, and then you avoid all that controversy. And it has less to do with intellectual property rights and a lot more to do with people's perceived idea of fairness, I would say.
0: Yeah, makes sense. That, brought, that made me think of another question where you were talking to. When you set out to make a game like Starving Artists or Sneeze, when you make it, do you... Is it something where you try to make it as... What's the word I'm trying to think of? As, like, unique as anything else? Or is it because when you were talking, a lot of games a lot of mechanics and stuff like that they're going to be very similar because i mean games have been made forever so you know it's you know there's going to be times where a lot of stuff is going to seem very similar and stuff like that so when you go and you look to make a game is it something that you try to make it as original as possible or you know do is there some things that you pull from that you're just like okay i really i really like this and i'd like to do that or do you try to find something that's just
1: out of it's way different from things that you've seen. So every time I try to pull from other people's ideas and, and make it my own either it's a mechanic I really liked in one game or not, I utterly fail. I, I am very bad at it <laughs> and it's no joke I, I can't I can't figure out how people take some of those mechanics and make it work especially if I find them neat and interesting. But as a lawyer one of the things that I do a lot in real life, not just my game life is, you know look at laws and rules and figure out sort of how to work within them how to do interesting and creative ways within sort of known bounds and it's actually a very interesting skill I've sort of been able to apply to game design which is all right, I I know I have these little bits and these components and I have this general idea of what I want to do, how can I do something that's a little different than what other people have done before in the past? In the case of Starving Artists, it was like, well, set collection isn't all that new of an idea, it's not new at all. Lots of people have done it, lots of people have done applying cubes to cards and things like that before. It was me trying to figure out something that was unique, something that was creative, and for that purpose, how I was going to win a contest at the Game Crafter, the survival game contest, and sort of not fall into the standard survival themes, Apollo 13, trying to get back to from space or lost on a lifeboat. I was trying to avoid those sorts of things and find a creative way to answer that. I had another game that was in a a learning contest where the unique thing I tried to do was how to play cards in a game called Happy Little Planets, where the cards were arranged to form a circular planet, little regular standard poker-sized cards. And so everybody can build a planet, everybody can play cards, but making them go in a circle was unique and different uh, enough. I didn't win that one contest, but tried tried to play within the rules, but, you know, be in a creative sort of way. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, you should make that. I like. I like that idea. My son would love that.
1: <laughs> uh, it, it's um, it's potentially a future Kickstarter. Probably not by me. Uh, I'll probably let somebody else have the rights to that game and run with that. I'm I'm pretty sure Starving Artist is going to kill me at this point. So. <laughs> uh,
0: well, that you know what I want to go off of that just because I I love to see other people's uh, takes on doing Kickstarters and stuff like this. Now, is this. Is this? I know you've done sneeze before on Kickstarter. Now, is this your second, or have you done more?
1: I actually never did sneeze on Kickstarter. I thought about it, oh, but so never, never, never actually launched it that way. Um, okay. I, I sold enough copies of it that it was an interesting, you know, foray into game design and um, sales. But this is my first starving artist is my first actual launch kickstarter and even in a single day i've sold more of this arguably than i sold of sneeze so (laughs) it makes sense it's beautiful looking and you you can tell you really put a
0: lot of time into it so you know a lot of people are going to be into it plus i don't think there i don't think there's enough we talked about this on our spotlight we don't think there's enough games about art out
1: there so it's 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 a good niche to uh go down right yeah i'm trying to give you some nicer things for your house yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that use that use that as the poll quote for kickstarter cuz I told I told Trace that and she laughed. She's like, "You're right." <laughs> so, what kind of things do you learn when you're, you know, doing doing the kickstarter thing for the first time that, you know, you didn't realize coming into it?
1: That there's a whole world of distribution and fulfillment and Chinese manufacturing and intermediaries that just that's what they do and I, you know, when I started down this path Um, Even just getting quotes before I did the Kickstarter thing. Like, it's amazing. There are hundreds and hundreds of companies out there that this is what they do. I I had no idea at the time. The other things that I've learned, you know, that you just can't do everything yourself. I I had to go get help for videos. I had to have people help edit and proofread (laughs) things like, you know, rule books. And there's just so many things that even the greatest most successful game designers there's just no way they can do all of this themselves
0: yeah it's it's it's, it's funny because you know you see a, i mean there's millions and millions of kickstarters out there these days you know and i i think people just think that they can just you know write a couple things down, shoot a, you know, 15 second video, and there you go. Well, there's a lot more to it than it seems. And there's a lot more coming out of your pocket than you realize.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, some of that is because they see the success of gigantic Kickstarters and they go, oh, well, that can't be that hard. It's a simple game about, you know, exploding kittens or something. How hard could that possibly be when there's a lot of work for most designers to get? Even started on building a page, getting the reviews done, getting quotes from reputable manufacturers, having a plan, having a game plan, having a media strategy all of those things that I'd say are required for a successful campaign.
0: Well, and those people that you know may not know very much about it and maybe throw out a you know, since we're talking about games, throw throw out a game and it makes. Millions of dollars. Well, guess what? You're going to be distribut- distributing all that to different people. So if you don't have your distributor down, then guess what? You're in, <laughs> you're uh waist deep or maybe even. Uh, uh, face deep in, you know, hot water, so you have to be very careful.
1: Exactly. I'm terrified of disappointing people, and so I will not let that happen, but there are some people that must just not even make that assumption that they could disappoint people and that that would be an issue. I'm just terrified of that. So
0: Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. I We put out this podcast free, and it's not like it really matters if we screw up or not, but I'm like, I'm always like, always got a knot in my stomach anytime anything goes wrong like you, today you... <laughs> You told me that when I put out the spotlight that uh, I wrote that your Kickstarter was starting last month instead of this month. So I'll be changing that tonight and feel super stupid and bad about it. But, you know,
2: it
1: happens. Yeah, well, I mean, even uh, even one of my comments on my Kickstarter is like, you realize you spelled Rembrandt wrong. I don't know how many other people have looked at the Rembrandt card uh, and not caught <laughs> caught that. But all it takes is one one set of eyes. Um, yeah. So I'm not infallible and I'm certainly going to get help in proofreading and you know the community the board game community generally is great about this stuff. so um, I, I owe a lot to them and I moving forward, I, I'm pretty sure that that's going to help a lot make this game. You know great for everybody.
0: When we were kind of spitballing as far as far as stuff to talk about, you had uh, one of the things you had suggested was unofficial expansions. So is that is that something where you're talking about where you know people just love a game so much that they just decide to make something on their own to go with it,
2: or?
1: Yeah, you know, it's sort of the unauthorized autobiography of this person, except that the you know board game or card game equivalent where they want to. Take a game and say expand it beyond what it was originally intended. My sort of homegrown example is I don't really like Candyland, but my kids like the pictures and the art and the board, and you know my my family has copies of it. And so one of my game ideas was to make uh, programming Candyland. So instead of just drawing a card and moving the number of colors it says to move, uh, you actually have to fit it into a little program. You go forward this, and you try to actually solve problems with the color cards that you draw and so it got me thinking about well could i actually go to market with a game called programming candyland where i provide essentially a set of other things that the cards would play into people could use their candyland board use their candyland pieces use the candyland cards and then just have sort of a deck of how to turn it into a learning game, essentially. That's what I mean by an unofficial expansion. It wouldn't be one that the original manufacturers or designers had wanted or th- thought about. There's a whole bunch of issues with it. Um, trademark rights. Most people, when they think of, you know, even something like programming Candyland, Candyland is owned by a company who's not going to license me the right to use Candyland in it. So then I find myself like, well, if I do it this way, I am going to be the recipient of a cease and desist letter. And is it worth the hassle, even if I'm right in my IP law that I have every right to, say exactly what it is. (laughs) Probably not. I'm going to tell you I would not make (laughs) enough money on a game like that to make it worthwhile. The other pitfall people run into is that they want to use copyrighted things from the original game. So either plot themes, or art, or templates, or you know, even in uh, something as silly as the back of a card so that they can insert their own own card into a deck. You know, those sorts of things you're going to run into other IP law issues. So those sorts of unofficial expansions are risky territory and
0: uh, it makes me think about uh when me and mike were talking about uh the marvel legendary game where the, um there's actually you know and i'm sure this happens with a lot of other games where people go on board game geek and and have a site where it or have a you know uh, they suggest stuff on the page or whatever it's like okay i like all of these marvel characters so i just made a bunch of cards and i actually made them to work with the game so you know, not only does it have a a picture of, say, Spider-Man from a different comic that I really liked, but it also has mechanics that work with that game. Well, you have to kind of be careful where it's like, you know, if you're going to do that stuff, it it better be something where you're just, it's just fun for you and your friends and it's not something you're trying to share with everybody else because you really could get in hot water that way. At the same point, it's still scary, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean when people want to copy the backs of cards or the templates or whatever it happens to be, um, or the characters or the art. But all of those things are dangerous territory the only thing that i can think of is uh the the folks who put out the witcher gave people permission sort of on a one-off basis not to do like a commercial sale of them but to make their own um cards from the game i can't think of the name of the the card in the witcher three game the trading card game that they had there but they authorized people to print copies of those for their per- personal use but not to go out and sell them on the market But so uh,
0: mm-hmm. for sure and I know there's probably some there's probably some places out there where you know, someone's, you know, tinkered with something and someone's caught it and they've worked with them,
1: but you know, I haven't heard too many instances of that, so it's it's interesting. Uh, nope. no, I'm always surprised when people are like, Well, I got this email that said it was okay and it's like from the company. It's like, Oh, that's awesome. Good for you. <laughs> That's very, very nice of them. That's not not too many people you're gonna see doing that. That's for sure. I would just tell them to to you know. Remember that it's very easy for most of these companies to send cease and desist letters and it's going to be very expensive and very hard for you to do anything about it, even if you think you're right. So better safe than sorry if you're going to invest your time and energy and money in your game. Just do it the right way the first time.
2: I had a question because we were talking about, you were talking about Candyland and like re-theming that and all that type of thing. I just looked it up and that game was made in 1949 you're talking about like 1922 being the cutoff date for everything. So say 30 years from now, is it going to be that anybody can make their own Candyland or is there something that still protects that after like that cutoff point of years?
1: So that's a, that's actually a really good question. It will probably depend on the Disney company. They're largely the ones that have picked and fixed Congress to have the 1922 is the cutoff date for copyrights and they continually extend it um, every time Mickey Mouse is threatened with public domain. (laughs) It's it's honestly the case. Even if that weren't the case uh, and it were say 20 years or 30 years from now uh, and Candyland is arguably going into the public domain, the only thing about the games that would be in the public domain would be the actual art and board and rules and words and text and Probably the cards. The actual name would still be protected. Well, I can't predict 30 years from now, but would still likely be protected by as a trademark, and you couldn't use the Candyland name, but you could do your own thing with the board and the art from uh, from the game.
2: So you could call it Ice Cream Land, and it would be fine.
1: You would be in much better ca- territory, absolutely. Nice. <laughs> we will remember
0: that. Yeah. Actually, 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 I want to call it. I want to call it wine in NPR land, just for Mike. <laughs> I, I may. I may have to buy that game. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that Disney is behind that whole thing. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I couldn't even imagine if that were if that were to slip up somehow and for that to you know go the way of the, you know the way of the public domain i just i can't imagine
1: yeah well in many ways um mickey mouse is now protected greater than the great works of art i used in starving artists so if you want to think about that <laughs> uh, how kind of crazy the world really is walt disney's doing so many things even beyond the grave it's <laughs> incredible exactly
0: <laughs> All right, Mike, so let's let's pedal your wares since we've finished talking about intellectual property information. So right now you've got Starving Artists going,
1: uh, you've got it going
0: for 30 days, right? Correct?
1: Yep. Yep. It was it started today. So you've got uh, almost a full month left. Yeah. So as of the recor- of the
0: recording, it's 419. We'll probably have that out in a few days. So it'll be good and running and on its way to funding. Um, again, we, you know, if you've listened to the previous episode, we really liked it and it was a lot of fun. What else are you working on or how else can people get a hold of you, Mike, if they want to talk to you about certain game stuff?
1: Sure. Uh, they can, if anybody has legal questions or intellectual property questions, I, I, do try to work with game designers and provide them free non-legal advice. Usually, trying to triage it for them. You can uh, find me on uh, Twitter It's probably the easiest way. Fairway Three Games. I'm also a frequent member of the the Game Crafter chat. So if you guys somebody wants to chat with me, I'm I'm there very often. Twitter's probably the easiest way. I'm there often a lot too.
0: And then also you do do some articles. You also have your WordPress, and then you you do stuff for in, the Inquisitive Meeple. Is that what is that what it is? Yeah.
1: Yep, so I do. Uh, I write an occasional uh, review view column for The Inquisitive Meeple, theinquisitivemeeple.com. It's Fairway Three scorecard. I have been doing reviews and previews for people's Kickstarters that are upcoming uh, and reviews of a lot of my Kickstarter deliveries that have uh, shown up at my door over the last few months. <laughs> Very nice. So, how did you come up with the name Fairway 3 Games? That is basically what's in my backyard.
0: It's from the third fairway. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So you just looked. You just
1: looked out and said, "Yes, this is it. This is the name I shall have." Yeah, this is this is about as creative as I get. Look out the window. I'm like, huh, oh, that's a that's a game company name. It sounds like I do not have any golf related games though. So, no, oh, jeez. well, now you're obviously you're, you're missing out. <laughs> Maybe
0: in the future. Yeah, there you go. You can have Mini Golf 3000 or something like that. Huh. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, Mike, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Again, go to Kickstarter, Fun Starving Artists. It's a great, fun game. It's fairly cheap, so you're going to get a great game at a great price. And uh, again, thanks for coming on. We will Hopefully, we'll have you on in the future. Yeah, thanks for coming on.
1: Hey. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun.
0: All right, guys, now it's time for the review. Um, This month, we're actually playing Steamworks by Tasty Minstrel Games. This is a game for two to five players. It plays about 90 to 120 minutes. It's for ages 12 and up. Basically, this is a game where you are basically steampunk characters, and you're building steamworks basically well that's the name of the thing so why would i say basically that is it so you're taking tiles and you're making um certain um, inventions. inventions thank you basically what you're doing you're taking these tiles and the game board basically has um three levels which they call ages yeah they got the three ages so you've got first age second age and third age okay the first age has eight spots which are actually two conveyor belts with four spaces apiece, and you start with um, starting tiles for the eight spots, and you put them in, put them in there, and then for a two-player game is different than a three or more player game. Basically, with a, f- a three or more player game, you actually use these clock tokens, which you use for victory points, but. Uh, We've only been able to play it with two players, so we use coins in the eras, which actually sit on the sides of the ages, okay? And every time that you, uh, between, in a two-player game, what happens is anytime you are done with a round, you take off a coin. Or if you play one of your players on someone else's um, inventions, then they get to take that coin from there and then it goes to your second age which has a single conveyor belt of five and then your third age has a single conveyor belt of six okay and every round no matter what the furthest right token will go off of the board because it's a moving conveyor belt if you take another one of the Tiles off the board. A tile won't fall off; it'll just move to the farthest right. And there's different ways to grab these. You can oh. grab these
2: inventions or something. Yeah.
0: And you have what you do is you have, first you start off with your two player pieces, okay? And you can get up to four player pieces during the game. So first, the first age you start off with two on your game boards, okay? And the first worker counts as zero coins. The second counts as one. Uh, once you get into the second age, you get a third worker that counts or that cost two and then when you get into the third age you'll use a, th- a guy that counts as three you also on your game board have a space for an automaton which is a big old robot that can be a free guy to a free worker to help you out with your inventions that it, uh, basically you have to grab one of the tiles and put it together with with your inventions to work each game board has an a and a b side basically okay uh the a side is your basically your first game that our first couple of games to get used to the game okay and they all have the same spaces on the top right you'll have if you put your worker there you take the rightmost tile from the age that you're in the second one you take any source and the sources that they have that you will that you have to have attached to your components so you you know you have sources that hooked into your components that make them a machine to make them move. So you have clockworks, which look like a clock, you have steams which look like pipes, and you have electrical which kind of looks like an electrical sign with a lightning bolt in the middle of it. And then one of the mechanic spaces, you can build an invention that is two which is basically your one source and your one component. Unless you have a certain tile that where you can build more, you can build bigger inventions of three or more. You can only build two at a time, which is your one source and your one component. And each component has to be hooked up to a source for it to work. Otherwise, it you cannot. And then the bottom right most on your A board is for activating that invention. And then you have a B side board for once you start getting better into play. Uh, your top right is you can... Uh, depending upon who your guy is, is a little different. Um, For instance, like I've got Professor Lucius Fitzgerald here. Um, His top rightmost is like you take the rightmost component on the board and then you can also build two. The second one is take a source. The third one is um, you can add a component to anywhere on the board, including your own. And then the last one is just activating an invention. So there's different ways to play. You've got different characters that have different kinds of things. They start off with different things too. Like most of the time you'll start off with a couple of a couple of things like either sources and components or a mix of both and some coins. And sometimes you'll just get a bunch of coins depending upon the person. And basically you go through the first, second, and third age and you try to build up stuff as much as you can, activating not only your own but other pe- other people's stuff to get the most victory points. So when you're playing a three or play a three or more player game, you're trying to get the clock tokens. And then if you are playing a two-player game, you're trying to get as many coins. Yeah, get your components out there because your components and then your victory points, which you can get with your tiles, are what help you to win. For the three player game, um, there's also victory tokens for the clock that go with the clock counters too to win. So there's different ways to build this up. Um, It sounds, by the the way I describe it, it seems like a lot of information, but once you kind of get going into the game, it's really not as complex as it seems. But there's a lot of different combinations of things that you could put together to really get your game going and, you know, really you know, either build your area or try to play off of somebody else's to, you know, get your stuff going and stuff like that. And there's a bunch of different tiles too that do different things as far as components go that will upgrade your inventions that kind of help you get different things. Like some help you get more coins, some will help you upgrade your invention to more spots so, you know, you won't just have... Your source and your one component, you can have up to like four or five or even six if you, or you can take any upgrade or any component and upgrade um, any of your uh, inventions and stuff like that. So I mean, there's just a lot of stuff going on here. I'm not going to read all of the I'm not gonna read all the components that they have because it's just there's just a lot. It's something that where you could probably go on board game geek and go on Taster Minstrel's website and kind of look that stuff up. But they have a table of contents that even tells you what everything is because it's really hard to remember everything. Even when you're playing, you're like, holy smokes! It's something to get used to, you know. But it's a game where when I first played this, I I kind of learned it with my wife and I didn't quite like it. I just was like. I don't get it, you know, I don't know what kind of strategy I'm going to have. But then the more I played it, the more I was like, okay, now I get this. You know, you just have to really kind of think about the strategy of, okay, what do you want on your side for your machines and stuff like that so you don't give yourself enough good stuff. But you also have to be careful that that your opponent doesn't take away your stuff. Because even though you get a bonus for the most part if somebody is on your area and uses your stuff... But they can also take away some good
2: combos that you have and stuff like that. So um, what did you think about the game, Mike? I was actually, when we first played it, I think I was a little, I don't know if confused. It's not really confused. It's more of like it was daunting to look at the pieces and be like, what in the world is all this? Because yeah. there's a lot of symbols on all of the different things that don't make any sense until you look them up. So pretty much every piece that was out there... Was looking up in the book to see what does this even mean mm-hmm. to figure that out but it didn't really take long to figure out what everything meant and then put it all together kind of and then form a strategy i mean mm-hmm. it it really it was surprising how quickly i was able to figure it out mm-hmm. and i know because we played it twice together and the second time we played it i there was maybe a couple of them that I looked up, because maybe mm-hmm. I hadn't seen them before, mm-hmm. or I just didn't remember. But otherwise, I remembered it, and we played it a week later. Mm-hmm. So it was like, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's probably not for novice gamers. No. It's not a game that you bring to your friends that don't game and say, hey, this is the first game we're going to try <laughs> together, because they're going to be a overwhelmed. But I really liked it. I really enjoyed the strategy aspects of it and trying to figure out, okay, do I activate this thing quick so that somebody else does not mm-hmm. Or do I build something now? Or do I wait until if I'm the last player, I wait and build that and then I get the first player token the next time and then mm-hmm. I can activate it right away, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of strategy like that. I really enjoyed when we switched over to the B side of the cards. Mm-hmm. The A side was fun but then the B side which had very different characters. I had... Professor, whatever his name was that Kurt just mentioned, Lucius Fitzgerald. There you go, um, and his ability, and even the write-up in the book is kind of like it talks about how he pretty much, if something isn't working quite right, add more stuff to it. <laughs> so his special stuff on the the side of his card, one of the things is just an upgrade. And you can just keep upgrading all your stuff and adding and adding and adding to your machines mm-hmm. and making them bigger, which kind of worked against me. I think you end up winning that game mm-hmm. because they just kept on being like, oh, well, I could add something else cool to that. <laughs> and then, you know, Kurt would come over and use my stuff all the time because I just had so much stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So, But I really liked it, and I really liked, I think, what is there? Is there eight different characters? pretty sure there's eight cards in there if I remember right. Yeah, so to me, that's awesome because it's like, I want to play with each of those different characters and see what the different strategy is mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. And even if I play with that same character, am I going to use the same strategy again? So for me, it's a lot of replayability. What did you say at the time was like an hour and a half to two? Yeah. It doesn't feel like, I, maybe we played it that long, but yeah. it doesn't feel like you're playing a mm-hmm. two hour game. Mm-hmm. I, I guess when we played it it probably did take an hour and a half, an hour and a half at yeah, least probably yeah but it really didn't feel like mm-hmm. that kind of game mm-hmm. which is nice cuz mm-hmm. sometimes you see that on the side of a <laughs> box and it's like I don't even want to bother with this mm-hmm. trying to learn this so and we did like the first night that we played it you had played it once before so you kind of knew what was going on mm-hmm. but for me I didn't know I had to learn all the rules mm-hmm. and it wasn't Like, take forever and learn the rules. Mm -hmm. There's a rule book that's decent sized, but half the book is just the description Mm -hmm. of the components, Mm -hmm. the different tiles. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I really liked it. (laughs) That's what I have to say on it.
0: Yeah, I agree with the whole time thing. It's, you know, a lot of times when you see that whole, you know, hour and a half to two hours, you're like, okay, if I have to learn this game, it's going to take me three, you know, or four, depending upon how slow Mm -hmm. things go, you know. I almost wonder if you have more players how that would affect the game.
2: I wonder, yeah, I don't know, because the time of the game kind of depends on taking away those clocks in the normal game or the coins, you know, on the ages for using, you know, other people's stuff. If you get more people involved, they're using other people's stuff more, so it might drain that stuff faster. Actually, well, no, they did, they upped the numbers for each amount of players, Mm -hmm. so it might be it might be pretty balanced yeah, as far as the yeah, time yeah yeah so
0: i don't yeah, know yeah and it seems like it's it's funny because when i you know when when i first came into this game there's a lot there's a lot a, a lot to kind of learn at first but it's not again i talked you know i talked about it it's not as daunting as you think it is you know Which I think has a lot to say with whoever, with Team G making this game and the designer of this game. You know, it really says something about, you know, what they did with that. I mean, they could could have went the route of, hey, here's a lot of explaining to do to not to get to a certain point where people are confused. Like, I think one of the things that was done really well with this game is all of the symbols on everything. Mm -hmm. On your cards or on your cards, on the game board, on the tiles, on your uh, player mats or whatever. Everything is similar. So for the most part, if you know what uh, this arrow, you know, this tile with a arrow going down basically means that it's the, the right most one depending upon where it is and it'll say on the you know different tiles and stuff like that you know and you know there's just a you know a bunch of different things where it's like okay this is this that is that so and it doesn't like it doesn't try to mix those things together where you're confused it's basically once you see what these different things are that's pretty much what it's telling you you know Mm -hmm. like the with the build it's got the it's got the hammer and then it's got the symbol for a source and then it's got the symbol for a component so you know, it tells you that's exactly what that is, and you don't have to have wor- you know worry about that, and you know, it won't be confusing. You know, mm-hmm. but yeah, I agree. It's just it's one of those games where once you get kind of the hang of it, it's it's fun to kind of get in the groove of. But it's also, like you said, Mike, it's got a lot of gameplay possibilities. Mm-hmm. I mean depending upon the people that you play with, depending upon how many players you play with, you know, depending upon the strategy of that day, depending upon what character you have. I mean, that those are a lot of possibilities
2: to bring a lot of different games to the table. It's not even just what character you have, but it's what character you have combined with what character somebody else has. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like you just have to have your strategy that way too. Like mm-hmm. I was playing against you. I don't remember what guy that guy was, but he kind of got to build more, mm-hmm. you know, like he could build two or three on his turn. Mm-hmm. If I was playing against somebody who did something else, I might have a different strategy. Like if I was playing against this guy with the, the upgrader thing, I'd be like kind of worried about what tiles are you taking off of the conveyor mm-hmm. belts, you know, and just a lot of different planning and figuring yeah. out. So, I mean, that just combinations brings even more possibility you mm-hmm. know so mm-hmm.
0: yeah because with you know not only with the you know with your clock counters and your money and your victory points the things you have to keep kind of keep in mind these these component tiles also have numbers on the bottom of them. most are ones and then some are twos and when you lay them out on your board to actually make your inventions those count as victory points so you have to kind of keep a track of that too it's like Mm -hmm. okay you know with your guy it's like he can put out as many things as he wants and they get a lot of points that way but you also have to think okay now he's got more stuff out there so now maybe i can use that to my advantage which i did Mm -hmm. when we played that game me eventually winning because a lot of times you had the the um, components where they had cash in something for victory points so i was just like i'm just gonna keep doing that you know so yeah it just it has a lot of different things to it and it's one of those games that when i heard when i heard about it i was like god this kind of sounds like it's you know it's pretty fun and then when we got got into playing it then i was like ah, I, don't, I just don't know and the more i got used to it i was like okay i can do this you know it's just sometimes you just have to have your head in the game and i agree with you mike too you just I don't think this is for the novice player. I think this is for someone who wants more of a challenge. I don't think this is something you would introduce to somebody that just doesn't want to play that. I think this is a heavier game than most. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think we've talked about it pretty much in length. So what are we going to rate it on our patented, unpatented D8 scale? I will go first feel like i'm being very generous to everything lately i'm just loving <laughs> it loving everything loving life the more i like i said the more i play this the more i like it so i'm just gonna say i give it a seven i really like it i, I just will this come out as much as i'd like it to probably not just because again it's one of those heavier games but the times that we've played it, I've really, you know, now that I've gotten used to it, I've really enjoyed it. And teaching this to other people may be kind of hard to do, but once they get into the mode of it, I think it'll be something where it'll be easy to play and quick to kind of do and you'll be able to play more games of
2: it. So it'd be nice to get that out. So i would give it a 7. What about you, Mike? I don't feel like I've been generous lately, really, for anything. It's been <laughs> quite a while since I've given anything. I gave uh, Starving Artist a 6 when we did that, but Mm -hmm. before that, I think it's been a lot of fours and fives. It feels like Mm -hmm. this game, I agree with you, I give this a seven. I really, I think there's a lot of replayability in it. It's really fun. Like I said, that whole thing about it being an hour and a half to two hour game and it not feeling like that, that really helps, you know? I mean, I just, I really, I want to play more of it. I want to play the other characters, um, see what's going on with them. I just feel like it's a game that we could play more often. So, yeah, I just... Fun game. Check it out. Very cool. Alright, and that's the game review.
0: Alright, I'd just like to say thanks again to Mike Wokosh for coming on the show. It was great insight on intellectual properties. And that's it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Kurt. I'm Mike. And we'll see you again. Bye. Bye. Legends of Tabletop
1: Podcast i